introduction and welcome to our seminar on gender issues in the workplace. My name is Stephen Gillick and I'm a partner here in the Employment and Benefits team at Mason, Hayes and Curran and I specialise in pensions law. Issues and problems surrounding gender in the workplace have always really been there, but they've only come under the real microscope in the last years and possibly even the last six months or so. I think we'd all like to think that Ireland is a fairly progressive place, but we only need to look at the changing evolution of the role of women in Irish societies to see that progress is painfully slow. 1918. Women over the age of 30 finally get to vote in Ireland. 1957, the Married Women's Status Act finally gives married women the power over their own assets. 1973, the Civil Service Marriage Ban ends. 1980, the first female High Court judge is appointed. And 1990, the first female President of Ireland, Mary Robinson, is elected. So, whilst Ireland as a society, as a whole, is grappling with gender equality, it is an area as a, where we, as a country, could and really should be doing much better. In just a moment, I'm going to focus on some issues that refer specifically to women and how they interact with pensions and retirement planning. My fellow partner, Liz Ryan, will discuss topics such as sexual harassment and the gender pay gap. We're delighted to welcome our guest speaker here this morning, Dr. Melrona Curran, who will discuss the topic of unconscious bias. Melrona is a lecturer in organizational psychology in DCU Business School and is also professor of leadership in the Princess Naraya University in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. We hope to wrap up just before 9 a.m., which should allow ample time for questions at the end. So let's start by looking at issues facing women in the context of pensions and retirement planning. I've entitled my presentation this morning, Pensions, A Man's World. And that's more of a question rather than a statement of fact. Is pensions an area where we see it as more of a a realm of male figures where men are more interested and it's not really an area of concern for women. Now, many of you may notice that A Man's World, it was a song by James Brown. And I had hoped to start my presentation today with a witty link in to some of the lyrics of that song. But back in 1966, Rolling Stone magazine termed this song as biblically chauvinistic so looking around the room this morning, I'm very glad that I didn't open up with some of the, the lyrics of that particular song. What is interesting, though, is that song was actually written by a woman, by James Brown's partner, Betty Jean Newsom, And it was written as a real kind of summary of her views on the battle between the sexes in 1966. So later on today, please not now, Google the lyrics of that song and see... If, in your view, does it accurately reflect what men or women thought between the relationship between the sexes, <coughs> excuse me, in 1966 and how this relates to the position today? Now, Ireland as a whole has many issues in the realm of retirement planning. Some are gender specific, but in reality, most aren't. 
It's a big issue, and we hear it constantly referred to as the pensions time bomb. Now, there's no silver bullet at the end of my presentation. I'm going to give some, some views as to solutions and ways to improve the situation, in my view. But I think this is an issue that's a societal problem, which will take government action and also action from employers. Now, this slide is a bit scary. The gender, pension, uh, gender pensions gap, 39%. So that means in retirement, women are 39% worse off financially than their male equivalents. And if we consider that the gender pay gap, which Liz will discuss a little bit, uh, bit later, is 14%, how do we go from 14% to a threefold increase in retirement to 39%. Well, I'm going to look at that, and I'm going to look at a few of the key pension problems facing women, in my view. Okay, so the first one, longer life expectancy. And of course, I put this down as a problem, but it is a great thing, and it's a credit to Irish society and society in general. Male life expectancy in Ireland is about 79, female life expectancy 83. So how does this have a knock-on effect to pension? Well, the longer you live in retirement, as opposed to, unfortunately, you can't pick the additional years to be in your working life in the middle. Uh, there's no 63 and a half, like Hogwarts uh, train station. These years are going to be at the end. So you're going to be paying for a more expensive pensions product. So it's going to be more expensive as we live longer to pay for our retirement. Less women working outside the home. So the last census produced some really interesting data of those individuals that categorise themselves as homemakers. So staying at home, looking after the children, essentially. 98% of those that classified themselves as homemakers were women. And to put it into more stark figures, of the odd 2.5 million men in Ireland, only 9,000 800 of those categorise themselves as homemakers. So when it comes to pension, we have a lot more women, as against men, working at home. So that you've lost opportunity really there to save for a private pension. Part-time work, women are more open than to job sharing or part-time work, research has shown. So obviously this limits the ability to save for pension. Gaps in employment history. This is a massive problem. Now, when I mean gaps, I refer to primarily two kind of gaps. Maternity leave and carer's leave. Research has shown that women generally, if there is a carer's role to be assumed, the women assume that role. Uh, maternity leave, I'll discuss in just a second. But obviously, if you're not in private work, paying a wage and paying and saving into a pension, you're going to have less of a pension. So that's a problem. The gender pay gap, Liz will discuss a bit more on this later, but the gender pay gap is around 14%. So that's a knock-on effect. If you're paid less than your male counterparts, you'll have less disposable income or a less percentage salary to put into a pension. Knowledge. Now, I've put a question mark beside this because the pensions industry seems to state that there's a gap in knowledge there uh, in pensions products between men and women. I don't know if that's really fair, and I'll, I'll leave it for you guys to, to ask yourselves the question, is there a gap? But there was a recent survey by the Irish Brokers Association, and they asked the question, do you uh, have a good knowledge of pensions retirement planning? 78% of men 
said, yes, we have a good uh, knowledge of pensions and retirement planning. And 55% of women answered the question. So you've got a 20% odd discrepancy there. Is it fair to say? I'm not wholly convinced, but it's an argument. Attitude to risk. Another sort of question mark on that. Because research has shown that females in general have a lower attitude, to, uh, lower risk, uh, aversion to risk than men which from a pensions perspective, you could put this on both sides. You could say that's a positive because you don't want to put everything on red and black, or you could take the view that it's a negative. But there seems to be a differential in the female-male attitude to risk on the whole. Trustee board composition. Pension schemes are managed by trustees. A lot of the times these can be corporate entities, but sometimes you have a trustee board which is composed of, say, employee, employer representatives, and also union representatives. Uh, recent research has shown that in the terms of the makeup of these trustee boards, that 50, uh, what is it, 55% of them are male only, 38% are mixed gender, and only 7% are female only. So there seems to be a weighting in the management of pension schemes towards a male area. And that is a knock-on effect, obviously, when it comes to the management and overall communication of a pension scheme. Quickly fly through maternity leave. It's pretty simple. From a pensions perspective, if you take maternity leave and your remuneration continues as normal, your pension contributions continue. If you don't get paid your maternity leave, then pension contributions stop. So that's where the problem really kicks in. Because you have the potential, if you have two or three children over your life, to lose out on three odd years of service in a DB scheme, say, or three years of the opportunity to pay into contributions, both employee and employer, into a defined contribution scheme. And just to mention, there's no obligation on an employer to pay contributions whatsoever outside the statutory period. As I mentioned, there's no quick fix here. This is going to take a range of options to improve pensions across the board, be it male or female. But a few ideas to help the situation for females. First, very simple, close the gender pay gap. Equalise pay, that means there's more disposable income for females, more contributions in a DC scheme if it's a percentage of salary. So one, close the gender pay gap. Recognise service. So maternity leave. Can we say, okay, during maternity leave you'll get paid, and you'll also get your pension contributions. That will require a legislative change to do that. So one problem, though, with that, if you think it through, if you say, okay, uh, a female worker will take maternity leave, and during that leave she'll get paid and pension contributions, suddenly it becomes very expensive to hire a female worker as against a male worker. So will employers look at that as a kind of way, if you have two people to choose, one, if they have two or three children, could be very expensive. So are you indirectly creating barriers to female uh, employment there? Trustee board, same as the board uh, quotas that Liz will discuss it. Do we have to say that if there's a trustee board in a pension scheme, there's got to be a diverse mix of male and female? Seems like a great idea, especially when you go back to my point about the differing opinions to risk. I mean, it seems to make perfect sense to have gender diversity in a trustee board situation. More pensions female advisors. I, I go regularly to pensions events, and you would typically see out of a room of 70 or so individuals, maybe six or seven uh, female pension advisors. So there's a lack 
of female pensions advice out there. And I'm sure many of you can relate to this when it comes to meeting a, pe- a pensions advisor. Invariably, it, it could be a man. Uh, product design. Do we need to look at the products? Do we need to kind of say, okay, from a female product design, same as any other product or any other financial product, do we need to uh, design it with a more female audience in mind? Perhaps we do. Gender-specific communications. Pension schemes already communicate to to members, say, age cohorts differently. So younger members can get different uh, communications. Middle-aged members a range that suits their age group, and then finally people there who are approaching retirement. Totally different communication. So it's not a leap to say that we can have male and female communications in a pension scheme that are designed to improve the way women and men understand the pension scheme and can make good decisions. So as I said, there's no quick fix. This is going to take concerted, uh, real kind of negotiation and taught on the part of government and private employers. But the position in pensions as a whole across Ireland needs improvement. But definitely when we look at female uh, position in pensions, it needs a hell of a lot of improvement. So with that, I'll pass you on to Liz, who's going to discuss sexual harassment and other topics. Good morning. I have to start my talk with a little bit of a health warning. Um, I'm sort of post flu and I have a bad cough. So if I go into a spasm, I'll be fine. And no need to come with the, uh, the, the uh, um, defibrillator or anything like that. Okay, hopefully we'll get through the next uh, 10 or 15 minutes without, without uh, such a spasm. Um, I, as Stephen mentioned to you, I'm an employment lawyer. I work very closely with Stephen. And I'm going to talk to you about some of the gender issues that arise uh, in the workplace. And Stephen and I were just having a chat this morning before the session began. I was going, you know, Stephen, we, 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 we titled this gender issues in the workplace. But of course, Stephen and I will predominantly talk about issues and concerns about females in the workplace, because that's kind of just the way it is with some of the topics that we're talking about. Um, I'm going to cover three particular areas with you. They are those of sexual harassment. So uh, sexual harassment has been getting a lot of media coverage recently, um, as recently as last night. You will have seen the news reports about the presidential dinner in the Dorchester Hotel. Uh, We've had the Harvey Weinstein um, allegations, the Me Too uh, social media campaign. So a lot of media attention in the last number of months around this whole area of sexual harassment. Um, You'll see from my talk that in Ireland we've had legislation uh, which obliges employers to protect their employees from being sexually harassed at work since 1998. So this is not new, or it's not a new concept, it's not a new process for Irish employers uh, to actually deal with. I'll also be talking a little bit about gender pay gap reporting and more about that later, and also balancing gender participation uh, on boards. So, let's talk first of all about the whole area of sexual harassment. Um, there is, in my experience, there can be confusion amongst uh, employers as to what exactly constitutes sexual harassment, and particularly how is harassment or sexual harassment different from bullying. So I thought we'd spend a few minutes just calibrating ourselves of the, if you like, the the legal roadmap around harassment, sexual harassment, and bullying. So the first thing to say to you is, harassment is not bullying, it's fundamentally different. 
You're probably all aware that the definition of bullying, there's no statutory definition of bullying, but the generally accepted definition of bullying, uh, which is provided for in, for example, the codes of practice, uh, is really about it, um, about behaviour uh, that is repeated and is, is undermines a person's dignity. So if, a pers- if somebody gives me a hard time and slags me off because I have brown hair, and they do it repeatedly, effectively, I could argue that I'm being bullied. Now, there's a sea change between bullying and harassment. So if somebody gives me a hard time at work because I'm a woman, that falls within the definition of harassment because females and males and transgender people um, and, and nine categories of people are protected from being discriminated against under the employment equality legislation. You're probably familiar with them. So it's age, gender, sexual orientation, religion, uh, civil status, traveler community, disability. So if the behavior that is manifested towards me is because I fall within one of those nine protected grounds, then if you like, the, the legal protection I have moves from being a protection against being bullied to a protection from being harassed. So if, 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 the, if the unwanted, unwelcome, inappropriate behavior is because of my category or my status as one of the nine protected grounds, the technical definition of that behavior is harassment. It's sexual harassment, where there's obviously a sexual element to it. And if you go to your booklets, um, which are there in front of you, I've included a really good code of practice in those booklets. And it might be just worthwhile for us to spend a minute looking at, at those. It's SI number 208 of 2012. And it's a code of practice on harassment. So if you go to um, page nine of that booklet, if you would, for a minute. It defines what harassment is. Okay? So, there's a bit of um, preamble, but it says effectively harassment is any form of unwanted conduct related to any of the discriminatory grounds, they're the nine grounds we discussed, which has the purpose or effect. That's an interesting wording, purpose or effect, because arguably that's subjective. So even though somebody might say something to me with no ill intent, if it has the effect of making me feel that I'm harassed, that's sufficient uh, for me to have a cause of action, of violating a person's dignity and creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or offensive environment for that person, then it clearly says bullying that is not linked to one of the nine discriminatory grounds is not covered by the Employment Equality Acts. And then if you look a little bit further down on page 10, you get the definition of sexual harassment, which is defined, again, in the preamble uh, reference to the Act, as any form of unwanted verbal, nonverbal, or physical conduct of a sexual nature, so it's gender-based, which has the purpose or effect, that's the subjective piece again, of violating a person's dignity and creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating, or offensive environment for that person. So now that we've calibrated ourselves, we can see that harassment and bullying are two very different concepts, and sexual harassment is a, is a gender-based um, uh, harassment. So um, the pivotal piece around uh, sexual harassment is it must be unwanted. And that sounds a bit 
tautological really, but it's very, very important because there is a recognition that in many workplaces, there's no prohibition against people having good social interaction and in some cases, a sexual interaction. You know, there is a statistic out there somewhere, I can't remember, but I think it's something around 64% of people in sort of their 30s will meet a, you know, a partner at some stage through work or in the course of work. So the work environment is a social environment. What, I suppose, transcends what's acceptable and what's not acceptable is where the conduct complained of is unwanted conduct. It's unwelcome by the recipient of that particular uh, conduct. So that's the definition of sexual harassment. Now, from an employer's perspective, employers are responsible for creating a work environment where sexual harassment is, uh, if you like, unacceptable. And in, in our experience as employment lawyers, um, we are obviously conscious that since 1998 the, there has been protection in our employment equality legislation for people uh, who are harassed at work. Um, but there doesn't seem to be, in my experience, a very good working knowledge of the code of practice. We don't see that many sexual harassment claims. Now, there may be an uplift in those claims as a consequence of all of the media coverage that has been taking place recently because as employment lawyers, we tend to see a wave of litigation following some sort of broad media coverage of a particular employment uh, topic. But I really would encourage all of you, um, when you go back to, uh, to the office or when you think about this subject, to have a look at the code of practice because even though the employer obviously may not even know that the sexual harassment is going on. They do have liability for that harassment. And if an employee takes a claim against an employer, the employee can succeed in getting two years remuneration. The employee doesn't, there's no service criteria, so from day one, an employee is protected from being harassed. Um, if the employee goes to the circuit court, and obviously you can go to the circuit court with gender-related claims, the, the, there is no limitation on the awards. So it can result in a very expensive piece of litigation for an employer. It has to be said, and if you look at the Uber, the situation that arose in Uber, where a woman on her blog um, named a number of people who uh, had been sexually harassed at work, it resulted in a large-scale investigation in Uber, the dismissal of very senior executives, and the reputational damage uh, falling out of that was absolutely enormous. So in one sense, I would say to most clients, really, the cost of the claim, it can be a relative drop in the ocean as compared to the reputational damage that uh, can be visited upon you if you're seen to be as an employer, an employer who, who has had uh, an incident of sexual harassment at work. And it gets slightly worse than that. As an employer, you're not only responsible for what happens within the four walls of your workplace, you're responsible for harassment or sexual harassment that takes place in the course of work. And what does that mean? Well, if, in very simple terms, it means that if your employees are at work-related events, like their Christmas party or a training course or a conference, and sexual harassment takes place at one of those events, then you are responsible for uh, not ensuring that you provided a workplace or a course of workplace uh, that was free of sexual harassment. So your liability just doesn't end at 4.30 every afternoon when your employees uh, leave work. And to, um, to the icing on the cake is, because it gets worse again, as an employer, you're not only responsible for your own employees, 
but you are responsible for, for a situation where one of your employees might be sexually harassed by a person who's not your employee, so a contractor, a customer, or a business contact. So it's a very wide level of responsibility that you have as an employer. But don't despair at all, because there's really good guidance for you in terms of what you need to do to discharge this, this uh, responsibility. Um, if you look at page 21 of your code of practice um, that I gave to you, there is actually a, the makings of a policy on sexual harassment in that code of practice. Uh, part 5 is entitled the Complaints Procedure. And effectively, what the code of practice says is, look, every employer should have a policy in place. That policy should say, um, from a, an objective point of view, um, that the employer does not tolerate sexual harassment in the workplace. Uh, there's a zero tolerance approach to it. Um, so a statement of how the employer feels about this area of sexual harassment. But then there should be a complaints procedure so that every employee in the workplace uh, knows what to do if they feel that they've been sexually harassed. And that complaints procedure, it's not rocket science. You'll have seen it. You'll be very familiar, actually, with the, with the, the, the format of the complaints procedure uh, through your knowledge of, for example, having a bullying policy. It's a very similar type of procedure. It's recommended you have an informal approach in the first instance. So a person who feels they've been sexually harassed can raise the issue informally with the alleged perpetrator and try to have the matter dealt with uh, at the lowest possible level. If there isn't a resolution of the issue at that stage, then it can be dealt with on a more formal basis. There is a provision for a contact person. Again, you'll be familiar with that from your uh, knowledge of bullying uh, policies. And there is a link to a possible disciplinary sanction. So in other words, it should be very clear from your policy that if one of your employees has been found to perpetrate sexual harassment, that he or she could be disciplined. And that's very important because if you subsequently move to take discipline reaction against one of your employees because they have perpetrated sexual harassment, you, need to go, you, you will need to be in a position to demonstrate, look, we've provided it for it here in our policy. So Mary or Johnny or Joe knew very clearly that if they were involved in this kind of behavior, it was unacceptable to the company and it could result impossible disciplinary sanction. So you may well be sit sitting there and going, well, sure, isn't that grand, but what do you do about the contractors and the business contacts? Well, what I recommend you do is that if you have contractors, uh, clients who come in and out to your workplace, um, other types of business contacts, you should be sharing with them the terms of your harassment policy, your sexual harassment policy. So in the matter of your commercial negotiations with a contractor, you should be saying, by the way, we'll require all of your staff to comply with our sexual harassment policy or our harassment policy, or indeed our bullying policy. Um, and that's not, that's not a, a terribly onerous expectation, because most good employers, and hopefully most contractors you engage with will be good employers, will have a similar type of policy in place for their own employees. The alternative approach is that you can say to your contractors um, that in order for you to secure this contract, you're going to need to demonstrate to us that you have one of these policies. So can we see your policy, please? Now, there is a fine line between getting 
too involved in monitoring the contractor's policy. So you kind of step into their shoes and take on their responsibility. So it's really a matter for yourselves to determine what makes sense for you in practice. But certainly, if you've responsibility for a contractor who might harass one of your own employees or one of your own employees who might harass or sexually harass a contractor, you, do, you can't just kind of you know, uh, you sort of uh, cross your fingers and hope it's going to be okay. You do need to be quite open and upfront with your contractors and your business clients about that. Okay, so just moving on then from sexual harassment, but before I do, just in summary, um, you know, it's important to understand what sexual harassment is and what it is not. Uh, and to have a policy in place. That's your best defense in the context of a claim. And remember, and as employment lawyers, we always say this to our clients, if you have a policy, you're expected to follow it. Um, the worst thing in the world is to be before the, the, the WRC it is, as it is now, but the old unfair dismissals, employment appeals tribunal, rights commissioner, labor court, any employment fora, uh, and uh, to, to be saying to a third party, look, you know, we've dismissed or we've dis uh, disciplined an employee as a consequence of a particular policy. And if you haven't followed that policy properly, you are in some difficulty. So if you do have a policy, uh, make sure that it's well known, it's well published, it's constantly reviewed, and it's communicated very clearly uh, to employees. So I'm going to move on now from um, the whole area of sexual harassment to talk about gender pay gap reporting. And again, um, there's been a lot of media coverage about gender pay gap reporting and there has been some, I suppose, um, confusion as to what exactly it's about. Um, a lot of people think it's, oh, isn't that Brian Dobson and Sharon Leviolon? And when gender pay gap reporting comes in, I'm going to know what other people who do the same job as me are paid. And that'll be great because I've always suspected that Johnny has earned much more than me for much longer, but now's my chance to find out. It's not about that at all. Um, it's not about equal pay. So you're obviously aware that since 1977 in this country, it is illegal to pay a man and a woman a different rate of pay for doing effectively the same job. So that's a given. It's not about equal pay. And um, what the gender pay gap is about is measuring the average salary of all the male employees in a workplace and all of the female employees in a workplace. So it's simply not going to give you the data of what your male, or, fee, or the case, if the case is um, that you, you know, it's a female comparator, it's not going to give you that kind of data. The rationale or the logic behind the gender pay gap is absolutely fascinating. The, there has been an initiative in place for maybe 20 years now where within the world there has been a measure of what is the gender pay gap. It's quite crude, but it looks at all the males at work and all the females at work. And it broadly calculates what is the difference in earning power. So in very simple terms, if a family had twins 25, 30 years ago, a male and a female, and that family gave the male, the female, the exact same educational opportunities, um, you know, encouraged them in gaining work experience and all the rest of it. Chances are the male is paid 13.5% uh, more than the female. And that's the reality for Ireland. It's pretty stark, isn't it? So, you know, all things being equal across all jobs, Irish men are paid 13.5% more 
than Irish females. And we're not doing badly as a country. The European average is 16.7. In the States, the figure is 18.8%. So this whole movement around a gender pay gap is really around raising that awareness, but also uh, encouraging employers to take steps to reduce it. Now, in the UK since last year, if you're an employer of over 250 employees, you have to publish in 2018 on your website what your gender pay gap is. And there are six statistics that you have to publish in very simple terms. They're the mean and the median of pay and bonus um, and um, across all your employees. And you can put some narrative on it if you want. Um, the rationale behind it is that if your gender pay gap is looking really poor as an employer and there's no narrative that you can necessarily give to support why that is the case, you're not going to look great in terms of you know, females joining your workplace. You're going to become less attractive uh, as an employer of choice. There's going to be question marks about hmm, why is our gender pay gap uh, so out of kilter. So that's the UK position. In Ireland, we have a bill in place, uh, the Gender Pay Gap Information Bill since 2017. Very hard to see if it's going to get any traction. It's a private member's bill. I read it yesterday. It's really high level. I think it needs a lot more work before it can move uh, towards uh, 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 becoming enacted. But there is now an impetus starting where people are going, gender pay gap stuff sounds kind of interesting, maybe we should have it here. Now, obviously, you know, there are reasons for a gender pay gap. Stephen covered some of them. I mean, you're really talking about, you know, uh, if females uh, take breaks from uh, their work, uh, it can be in certain circumstances where, um, you know, uh, you can have a structure of a workplace which has been traditionally male because it was involved in heavy engineering in the past. But the reality now is 65% of university graduates across all disciplines to include engineering and the STEM subjects are females. So over time, while that excuse of, well, you know, there aren't just female engineers looking for the manager's jobs, because that's what a lot of employers will say, that reason will become more and more subject uh, to, being quest to, be, to being questioned. So that's gender pay gap reporting. Watch this space. Finally, um, what about gender participation on boards? Um, so there has been, within Europe, a movement towards collating a directive to improve female representation on boards. Um, you're probably all familiar with some of the statistics out there in terms of the very low level of female participation on boards uh, in Ireland and in other countries. Um, so there, there is a directive in place, and it sets a quantitative obje uh, objective for the proportion of underrepresented sex. So obviously on some boards, which are all female, they'll need to address balancing their boards and putting more males on the boards. But the underrepresented sex should be now set at 40% for non-executive positions and 33% for executive director positions by 2022. Now, this directive obviously um, is, 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 I believe, quite limited. Uh, I'm not sure it's going to have a huge effect because it's 
um, focused on listed companies. We have very few listed companies in Ireland, so I'm not really sure of how much effect it's going to have. Although there's always an impact when you get an initiative, whether it's in the public sector or in the public uh, company sector, there is a percolate down kind of impact. Um, but uh, at the moment, this, uh, this uh, directive is only aimed at, um, at publicly listed companies. Uh, it will require member states to publish a list of companies uh, to the competent authorities uh, at least once a year and to have a designated body responsible for ensuring the promotion of gender balance. So, in summary, um, there's a couple of takeaways there in terms of the sexual harassment policy. One of the things that um, some organizations are thinking about doing, in my experience, is voluntarily um, entering into uh, gender pay gap reporting themselves. So without necessarily any legislation being in place, just saying, look, as an organization, we like this idea. It's a good idea. You know, we, want, we, want, we feel that females or males, as the case may be, are slightly underrepresented. We'd like to improve that. So we're going to start and do our own gender pay gap reporting and hopefully make us more attractive as an employer of choice, particularly in a tighter labor market than we've had in the past. And then just in terms of reviewing participation on boards is a good idea. What I suppose I would say to you in summary is that is there a revolution happening in terms of um, gender equality in employment law? I would say no. There absolutely isn't. Uh, that's not to say it won't happen in the next month or the next year or so. But there's a quiet evolution. There are, you know, there are steps occurring which are moving slowly uh, towards a situation where uh, there's a better balance at, in the workplace, uh, on boards, and where people in the workplace feel protected uh, and not discriminated against on the grounds of their gender. So thank you. Morning, everybody. I'm going to go through this like a train wreck because there's somebody down there timing me. I'm very happy to share the slides with you, so if you want them afterwards, that's fine. Okay, so uh, we need to start off with this um, and recognise that we deceive ourselves all the time, unintentionally. This isn't, you know, a, a crime that we commit against each other, but it just happens all the time, so knowing about it really is our first protocol. Uh, so, how do you make a good decision? Well, you obtain complete and perfect information and you can kind of stop right there because when does that ever happen? But this is the idea, this is what's called classical decision making. And the upshot of all of this, you eliminate uncertainty, evaluate everything and the upshot of that is you end up with a good decision. Uh, that's not very real. This is the uh, neuroscientist from the Salk Institute and he has done extensive research on how, uh, or sorry, where decision making begins. And so this was his, one of his experiments. He puts a neurological wig on his uh, subjects and asks them to do a task and the task is press this button. And so what he found out was that in relation to the part of the brain that lit up first, it was that part of the brain that's responsible for autonomous action, in other words, the unco unconscious element of our behaviours. So uh, he concludes that the unconscious is in charge. And so given the, the, the intangibility of those components, this is why we pay attention to what are those factors that we need to maybe pay a bit more attention to so that we make a better decision. So the first person to talk about the unconscious was this um, uh, 
handsome devil. Uh, but actually, this is the person who's far more equated with the unconscious, who was Sigmund Freud. And basically what he did was he got these women to lie <coughs> on this couch. This is his couch in Vienna. And to um, free associate, that's the term. And from that, he concluded that the mind is a tiny little bit like an iceberg, in that there's far more beneath the surface going on than there is above the surface. Now, while a lot of Freud's ideas are very contentious, this idea about the presence of the unconscious has actually been reinforced by modern science. And so this is Professor Timothy Wilson, and what he concludes from his research is that uh, we're exposed to 11 million pieces of data per second. We can only consciously process 40 of those, so that means a hell of a lot, uh, a hell of, a lot of what we do have unconscious dimensions. So what are these unconscious dimensions? These are things that everybody does. This is not something that girls do to boys or boys do to girls. Everybody does this in their decision making and we generate or we invoke these heuristics uh, in decision making which are essentially shortcuts for decision making. So what are they? The availability bias and what that refers to is basically the things that are available to you in your head are what flavour decisions that you make. Another heuristic is the representative bias, which refers to when you assume that a person is representative of a group and you assume that that person then has all those characteristics of that group as well. So um, here's an example, and I hope I don't offend anybody. Uh, so heaven is where the police are British, the chefs are French, the mechanics are German, the lovers are Italian, and it's all organized by the Swiss. So this is a representative bias, it's perfect, but uh, hell, on the other hand, is where the chefs are British, the mechanics are French, the lovers are Swiss, the police are German, and it's all organised by the Italians. <laughs> so we do this the whole time, so we just need to tune in, um, and we kind of, you know, group, grouping things together. Here's another couple of heuristics, confirmation bias, we see what we expect to see. So much data around this, when you're expecting a person to be a certain way, you look for data to actually confirm that uh, position that you've adopted in the first instance. And then also affect, in other words, emotion. Emotion hugely covers our decision making. And so we need to kind of ground ourselves before we step into a contentious occasion uh, to really kind of try and park that emotion because the research shows it really floods our decision making. Now, those heuristics are good because if we hang around the whole time, we'd be dead a long time ago because we need to be able to make decisions very quickly on occasion because it's an emergency and it's, it's a crisis and so we're saved from being extinct. Um, but not every occasion <laughs> has those characteristics which is why we need to pay a little bit more attention to the fact that these are natural drivers of our behaviour unless we tune into them and become aware of them and that's what unconscious bias awareness is, is simply all about. This is a great book. Daniel Kahneman, a Nobel Prize winner in economics, re released this recently. Definitely worth a read. So what are some other forms of um, bias in decision making? Uh, this is the, called the mother of all bias, overconfidence. And what it refers, or what it may explain, is why 70% of entrepreneurs crash and fail, because they're just deluded in relation to how successful their business can be. Um, there's two things that protect you from overconfidence, good calibration and good discrimination. So calibration means refer, refers to knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know. 
and keeping those two things very clearly in your head. And then good discrimination refers to knowing the difference between signals and noise. So what counts and what doesn't count? And if we look at some data, and this is drawn from the work of Max Bazerman, who's a fabulous scholar in this field, this is what's called best possible calibration and discrimination, where basically the objective frequency of something is completely in line with the subjective probability of it. I'll just give you some data. So this is a doctor's diagnosis of infection. So you can see the blue line being the doctor's and the, the red line being perfect calibration. Um, this is lawyers' predictions of winning their case. I clearly don't think they're ever not going to win their case. Um, this is meteorologists' prediction of perception, of, of, sorry, <laughs> precipitation. This is US data. In the US, meteorologists <coughs> express their forecast numerically. They get feedback. Does it rain? Does it not rain? And that's all they do. They're not like our crowd who wish people happy birthday. They just tell the weather. And so if you stick to those things, you have a really good chance of protecting yourself from the mother of all bias, which is overconfidence. Here's a few more, the halo and the horns effect. So the halo effect is when you see one good quality, or you, what you call a good quality of, of an individual, and you assume everything about that person is also good. Halo effect is the opposite. There's nothing like familiarity to make us be, uh, to, to make us prefer it. Uh, you go on holiday and you buy all sorts of Irish stuff that you never in a fish would buy if you're home at home simply because it's familiar to you. Here's another bias, uh, the self-serving bias. We don't necessarily like any kind of unpleasant truths, but we certainly will line up for comforting lies about ourselves. This is something called the endowment effect. It's from research in Chicago. And so the story was um, Michael Jordan is going to play his last match. Uh, you'll never see him again, and tickets are like, you know, hen's teeth. Um, how much would you pay for a ticket? Give me a shout out. How much would you pay for a ticket? Last game is a bit like, uh, you know. Well, let me give you the answer. You're all a little bit shy. So, willingness to pay is approximately $400. And then the experiment was turned on its head. So, you have a ticket for this. And you'll, nobody will ever see him again. And uh, he was such a huge, big person, all the rest. How much would you accept for that same ticket? It's completely different. We completely overvalue what we own. So, that floods into our decision-making as well. And obviously the similar to me effect, and so this may reflect this uh, uh, um, familiarity bias as well. Anybody that's similar to us, we feel safe with them. It's easy, we get them. There's no hard work. Anybody who's different is a bit of an uphill climb. So these are all uh, unconscious elements of our behaviour that we need to kind of, th that have served a functional purpose, you know, we, and we need to be aware of that, but just not all the time. And so we need to be aware of the fact that we don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. So... How does that trickle into decision-making then? Well, there's lots of evidence in relation to uh, these factors affecting the outcomes of decisions that are made. So, for example, good-looking people far more or get far more positive evaluations than ugly people. Um, heavier people get far <coughs> poorer evaluations than unheavy people. People with disabilities get far worse evaluations, or not as positively evaluated as able-bodied, but it depends why you have that disability. If it's something that you in any way con contributed to yourself, con contributed to yourself, 
your evaluation is poor. People with uh, unusual names for their cultural context, in terms of sending out CVs, had to send out 15 CVs before they got a callback, whereas people with names that are familiar for a context, so this is American research looking at white sounding names and black sounding names. So 10 CVs for a white sounding name to get a callback, 15 for a non-white sounding name. What is it about height? And this may reflect this uh, halo effect. So in the States, about 14% of the population are six foot tall, but actually 60% of CEOs are. Uh, if we take that a little bit further, in the States, about 4% of the population are over six foot, but actually 34% <laughs> of CEOs are. And here's an interesting little uh, statistic. There's actually a positive correlation between height and salary. Don't ever fall into the trap of recognising or of failing to recognise that correlation does not mean causation. And I think we have to be very careful in how we interpret all data so that we don't have these broad brushstroke generalisations that fail to recognise the detail and, and that's where the devil is really. In one of the earliest experiments looking at gender at work, um, or earliest papers, uh, they recorded um, the gender makeup of orchestras. This was back in the 70s. And what they found was that 7% of orchestras were female. They changed the audition process such that uh, musicians auditioned behind a curtain. And overnight, just like that, the 7% went up to 30%. So when things like that happen, you tend to think, okay, is there, is there something? Do women sound different when they play music? Or, you know, or is this bias? Is it unconscious bias? Because is it similar to me? Effect? Is it familiar? What is it? And so research has, has tried to explore this whole area of gender bias in, in a more significant way. This is one of the uh, uh, primary examples that has been re replicated for, for decades. Exactly the same CV is sent to recruiters for a management position, um, but there's two differences. Sorry, there's one difference in that the name is different. Um, and time after time what happens is the CV with the male name for this specific job is regarded as more competent, more hireable and more worthy of a higher starting salary. Um, and what that kind of re reflects is who we expect to be bosses. And if you Google boss, these are the pictures that come up. If you Google bossy, you'll get a whole load of different pictures. Um, and then when we think about the management role, uh, other just to share some other research findings with you, when you think about the words that are used to describe men, they would include these types of uh, terms, self-confident, analytical, logical, uh, assertive. The words that describe women would be curious, helpful, not vulgar, etc. When you look at the words used to describe managers, there's a 71% overlap between those used also to describe men, but just a 10% overlap with those used also to describe women. So this is kind of interesting. Uh, other research, this was a study looking at uh, venture capital, um, or sorry, venture funding uh, rounds in Sweden and uh, the evaluations given to male and female entrepreneurs who were bidding for funding. It's interesting, uh, young and promising was for the male, uh, young but inexperienced was for the, the female. Um, aggressive but a really good entrepreneur, enthusiastic but weak. So the terms that are used resulted in the decisions that are made such that 52% of men got what they wanted but only 25% uh, of women got what they wanted. 
Maybe it's something to do with uh, how people say things. So this is evidence from uh, Silicon Valley, and what they noticed was that uh, over the years of pitching for funding, most of it was awarded to men, so they just thought, well, women aren't saying it right. It's always been the case, kind of fix the women if there's something wrong. And there is an element in relation to encouraging women to be more confident and to get in there and negotiate for what they want, as opposed to kind of the waiting to be asked to dance kind of behaviour that can go on. So anyway, they gave the men and the women... um, coaching and then what happened was even more of the money went to the men and so you think well what's actually going on here is it that we're looking for a leader and what is it that we perceive a leader to be so if you look at where how we're socialized um, women are socialized to demonstrate this uh, value called communion which is factors to do with supporting the survival of the group whereas boys are socialized to demonstrate agency which refers to factors that are related to um, competence and achievement and accomplishment and the problem is that when it comes to leadership it is agency that is valued and not communion so with that results in is that we tend to think that men are like think manager think male one explanation for this is what's called role congruence theory which suggests that we automatically think boys do certain things and girls do other things and what that has resulted in then is when women are in uh, what's regarded as a male job um, it's, an e- it's, it's not as easy a position to navigate successfully and this is demonstrated in the Goldberg paradigm where exactly the same speech is evaluated by both men and women. When it's given by a man as fantastic and when it's said by a woman it doesn't quite always get exactly the same um, uh, response. This is sometimes sometimes can result nonetheless when women are very competent in a field actually uh, getting even more positive endorsements and is referred to as the talking platypus phenomenon whereby you don't expect a platypus to talk but when it does talk actually it can be fantastic so you you have some kind of a, a, a complex set of factors going on there And then, you know, Nature is the number one uh, scientific journal globally. And a study was reported in that uh, with respect to medical council grants in, again, in Sweden. And I suppose in Sweden, you know, that would be put out there as, you know, the blazing the trail to equality. Um, And what they found was that, um, so when people apply for funding, they submit their application and it's evaluated by a board and the members on the panel award at certain points and then award the funding. So the highest points get the funding. And what they found was that in order for a woman to be valued as, or evaluated as equally or as competent as the men, she would actually have to um, outperform them by 63 impact points. So what that, break that down, what that means is three extra papers in nature. Now people spend their lives getting one paper in nature. So three extra, or 20 extra papers in an excellent uh, uh, domain specific journal like Cell or Gut or one of these fantastic things. So we do have this evidence of of things being um, uh, unfair with respect to gender, but I think it's also important to to recognise that there are also studies that find no evidence of bias whatsoever, no evidence of uh, negative evaluations for women. And this is one of them. So this is the fifth most widely 
uh, cited journal. Um, and this is a study published quite recently. And so what they found was that when women were when women's applications for uh, tenure track positions in American universities were evaluated, and they evaluated them by 873 people, that women were actually favoured two to one for those positions. So what they concluded was apply that there is some kind of a barrier in relation to actually stepping into the, into the zone, pushing yourself forward, but actually when you do put yourself forward, you get somewhere. So all I want to do is make sure that you're aware, this is not a one-sided, uh, uh, we, can't, we, don't have, we can't have confidence in suggesting that this bias is all-inclusive and it's been there forever and it's never going to change. There's actually evidence on both sides, and if we draw on both of that, and good evidence, there's far too many correlational studies out there that are allowing or that are leading to people drawing absolutely invalid and unsubstantiated conclusions. So if we're going to make any headway, we need to, you know, uh, stick to the good data. So um, what this nonetheless can lead to is quite, kind of an unbalanced uh, situation at work with respect to the decisions being made based on unconscious bias, which is a similar to me effect, the familiar effect, or familiarity effect, et cetera, et cetera. And while this might not make people uh, smile very much, it actually brings a few threats to your business. Uh, difficult to attract and retain talent, to build creativity and innovation, to maintain the reputation of your brand, um, and the litigation elements that we talked about earlier. So, what do you do? Rule of thumb, stop going with your gut. Know what bias is. So, we need all our staff to be really punctual, because otherwise it throws off the schedule bad badly. As a result, it won't hire anyone from Spanish-speaking countries, as they just don't understand the concept of time. So, that's bias. So, just a few other examples of bias there. This is a great test. If you Google Harvard IAT, Implicit Association Test, you can do a test to see how biased you are, and that's a good starting point. You're likely to get a graph like this. This, whereby you thought you were biased, but actually your implicit bias is far higher than your explicit bias. And then think about when you meet somebody different, you know, just dissect that a little bit, give it a bit of thought and think, well, where did I learn the bias from and, you know, can I provide myself with evidence that that is the case? And remember that the root of the Latin word, respect, means to look again, which means just, you know, uh, approach people in their individuality. Think about the signals you're sending so that people may very quickly pull up whether they're similar or different to you and the effect that that's going to have on your interaction. And then what about organisational bias? There was a study published last year, looked at 30 years of data on what interventions have an impact on uh, diversity and equality at work. And one thing that absolutely has no impact, in fact a negative impact, is mandatory diversity training, which is what um, people do very regularly. They send everybody along to this course. Um, what does actually help a lot is voluntary training, you know, and other things like championing, somebody being a champion for enhancing gender balance in the unit and really kind of uh, coming on board with that in a big way. There's a couple of other things, mentoring is a big thing, and maybe even having a diversity manager, you know, somebody who's charged with uh, accountability within the organisation. There's a couple of other things though, <coughs> clearly identify what constitutes success. So this is an experiment whereby there was a, a vacancy for a police chief and the sample were asked, well, you know, 
what should what characteristics should this person have and absolutely people thought well you know advanced training and policing is a really important thing and so then they were given CVs where the people with the most advanced training were women and then suddenly uh, no actually they need to be street smart so we can't be moving the goalposts as to what constitutes success we need to know absolutely what it is uh, and the way you do that is you become extremely structured in your decision-making process. I mean, that's the purpose of psychometric tests, is, which is to give you scientific data and objective data. And we need to align our decisions as closely as possible to that kind of scientific um, uh, um, method. Uh, collect data. Um, can't improve what you, what you don't measure, that's for sure. But as Einstein said, just because you can count something doesn't mean it counts. So you need to have really a clear sense of what it is that you're measuring um, and, and its value. Because if you're measuring the wrong thing, you'll get wronger. So what should you be dating or counting, representation, recruitment metrics, staffing metrics, all of these types of things that really are underpinned by um, or, or, or result in you being able to justify every single one of your decisions. It uh, could be the case that you also think in terms of drawing up clearly uh, an explicit DNI strategy and maybe getting some help with that. Um, so there are all the, uh, that's what unconscious bias is and that's why we need to think about it and there's a little bit of bedtime reading for you as well should you uh, feel so inclined. Thank you very much.